Welcome to Talking Bach, a podcast by Bach Academy Australia. My name is Madeline Easton and I am the Artistic Director of Bach Academy Australia. This podcast series will accompany each of our concert series throughout the year. The topic of discussion for our upcoming concert series is In Bach's Orbit. The idea for this podcast season is to whet your appetite for the wonderful music of Bach you will hear and to also really deepen and enrich your knowledge of the key figures in Bach's life who guided him and influenced him both musically and personally. We explore why and how a true genius becomes a true genius, a question many artists and scholars have contemplated and cannot be answered without debating the argument of nature versus nurture. My guest today is renowned Australian countertenor Russell Harcourt. Russell is a graduate of both the Sydney Conservatorium of Music and the Royal Academy of Music, where he graduated with distinction in opera performance. During his time in London, Russell furthered his studies with Australia's own Yvonne Kenny. He was an associate of the Young Artists Program at the Royal Opera House Covent Garden and was made an alumnus of the Britain Peers Young Artists Program. Since returning to Australia, Russell has appeared as soloist with ensembles such as Pinchgut Opera, Opera Australia, and yours truly, Bach Academy Australia. Welcome, Russell. Hi, Maddie. Nice to be with you. It's wonderful to be with you and to be working with you again after all these years. Actually, that's not true. You sang in our Easter Oratorio program. After those last few months. After those last few months, which seemed to have stretched on for more than one decade. <laughs> it seems like last year. It does. It does. A lot's yeah. happened since then. Yeah. Huh? You are a student of Graham Pushies, aren't you? I am. Yeah, Graham is obviously one of Australia's most well-known countertenors. And what's fantastic is that you were not only a student of Graham's, but when you moved to London, you were a student of Yvonne Kenny, who was Graham's most famous duo partner in all those fabulous Handel operas that Opera Australia used to do. Yeah, I was very fortunate to have both of them as, as teachers at different stages of my uh, singing life or singing career. Uh, and I think they both complemented each other really well. So what was the difference? Um, what was the sort of the benefit of learning singing from a countertenor and then from a soprano who isn't a countertenor? Uh, I guess when you study with someone that is the same voice, there's an immediate connection and understanding of the instrument Yeah. Uh, that no one else can share unless they are also a countertenor. Even though uh, countertenor voices are different, all different. We, you know, ranging from uh, what you consider a real male alto through to, um, I can, I like to consider myself more um, mezzo-soprano in terms of range and um, vocal quality, uh, but even up to almost, you know, like what some people call or refer to as male soprano. Um, so there's this wide range of the, the countertenor voice, which I think in the last 30, 40 years, people now have a better understanding of. It's becoming less of a novelty voice type as it may have been in the 80s or even in the 90s. So it's becoming much more widely accepted uh, within the mainstream, particularly within um, opera and the repertoire. Graham and I, our voices differ slightly. He's, he's always been, uh, or I should say, I can't speak for him, I've always been more comfortable singing slightly um, higher repertoire than he sang. So that's one thing I found different studying with 
with him uh, that as I got older and got more comfortable singing uh, in the upper part of my voice or the upper register, I found the repertoire I started to sing was slightly different to the repertoire he'd sung. Mm, But then there is still some crossover in repertoire. He's, He's sung a lot of roles and I've sung a few of them so there is uh, there is some crossover Um, and then going to Yvonne the difference starting with soprano uh, I think she really encouraged me to use the upper part of my voice and enjoy using it and like I said earlier just refining the way that I use it and, and in terms of accessing that part of the voice and being comfortable doing it. That's that's absolutely fantastic. And listen, once you you had great success in Sydney before you even left for London. So, you know, you sang uh, Oberon in Midsummer Night's Dream. That's quite a role to sing. Yeah, that's uh it was my first role in opera and I I loved doing it. That was in um in Perth in Whopper in a a student production, but there's something about opera and the um the overall arc of the story and all the characters involved. It's just a very special piece as well. It really is. Uh, that I'm so fond of that piece. Just the very opening with the glissando strings up and down in these magical Beautiful. harmonies. It's like Britain manages to conjure up images of silver cobwebs glistening in silver he and does. all the fairy magical forest atmosphere and then for the king of the fairies to be a countertenor I think is a really interesting choice yeah I think voice Brit- type for Britain that. was really clever he wanted to um, utilize Alfred Della at the time when he wrote it and I mean what better way to have an ethereal character with this ethereal voice type absolutely it's incredible but when you did go over to London, you worked with some absolute legends, you know, just to name a few. So Charles McCarris, Jane Glover, Christian Kernan, the opera director Peter Sellers and our very own Erin Helliard and Natalie Murray Beale, both of which are very, very close friends of mine, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Um, so, you know, you, you've really got some fantastic experience over there. Yeah, I, sometimes I, I have to be reminded um sometimes I have to be reminded that I have been very lucky to work with the people that I've worked with. Someone like Sir Charles McCarris, he was, he, uh, he died not long uh, after I worked with him, actually, maybe um, a year. Um, but such a kind man and very encouraging and supportive and particularly as, you know, working with him as a student on Semele was the opera that we did. It was a really great experience and he wasn't very well at the time either, but, you know, like a trooper, Australian trooper, <laughs> yes. uh, he never showed it. Yeah, no, I worked with him many times as well, um, most most of which was in the Hanover Band. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, he really was, He, he you, know, he, you know, he would have been on his deathbed and still be trying to organise a rehearsal or boss somebody around, or, <laughs> you know, one of those things. But, yeah, yeah. Um, People like Christian Kernan, he's another one for me who I personally learnt so much from working with in the early opera company over there. Yeah, excellent, uh, very clear, uh, excellent coach to the couple of sessions during um, uh, the opera I was working on. I thought, you're brilliant. Yeah, he really is. Yeah. Uh, So listen, in this program that we're doing... um, It's called In Bach's Orbit, and as you know, I've designed the program all around this weird question of nature versus nurture. 
And that's what we're delving into in this little podcast series. And uh, I'm just fascinated by, you know, so was Johann Sebastian Bach born a complete genius or was he molded? And it's almost a question which is completely impossible to answer. And I'm sure pretty much everyone we talk to in our exploration of the subject will say, well, it has to be a combination of both. So if we just accept that and look at the people around him, it is fascinating to see how they influenced him all the way through, both musically and personally. I've sort of picked the the sort of four or five composers I think probably most influenced him. And uh, the reason you're here is because <laughs> Johann Sebastian Bach's second cousin, Johann Christoph Bach, wrote this incredible lamento for solo countertenor and strings and, and uh, theorbo. And it was actually put on to me by a friend of mine, uh, very different of mine, Marco Belgiorno Zegna, who is an incredible patron of the arts. No one loves music more than that man. He deeply, deeply loves it. And anyway, uh, just occasionally he'll sort of email me all these mad suggestions of music because he goes down Spotify rabbit holes and discovers all these mad things. And one day he wrote to me and said, have you heard Johann Christoph Bach? And I said, actually, no. And he said, you have to listen to this. And I listened to this incredible lamento and I, I was glued to my chair. I, I was just thinking, what is this? It's just the way that it actually begins. You've got this sort of E major chord, very, 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 very sparse chord. And then these wonderful suspension builds. And then you suddenly get this wild chord. And then after that wild dissonance that you just don't expect, suddenly you come in over the top of it all with this magical countertenor line. It's the most exquisite and unusual piece of writing, uh, which, and I don't know how long ago you became familiar with it, but I actually remember doing this in my final year uh, recital when I was at the Conservatorium in Sydney. Coming back to it years later, looking into it and rediscovering things that I didn't notice at the time when I first sang it. It's the most, I think, exquisite, dissonant, um, but also beautiful and chromatic and full of pain and suffering and longing. And I think it's perfectly orchestrated. It's a gem and I'm so pleased that I get to sing it again oh, with you. I'm so thrilled you're singing with us as well. It's it's absolutely magical. I, I have a feeling that it is so full of pain because poor old Johann Christoph's life was very, very, very difficult. Um, just reading about his life, um, he was actually... Uh, you know, he, he was the son of Heinrich Bach, who was one of the um, Bach family of composers. And he was J.S.'s first cousin once removed. And he was also cousin of Bach's father, um, Ambrosius Bach. But Bach's first wife, Maria Barbara Bach, Johann Christoph was her uncle, actually. So you know what's actually really weird is that um, J.S. Bach's first wife was his second cousin. So she already had the same surname as, as him. She was already a Bach. I think we need a family tree. We'd Oh, look, that Bach family tree. What you can do is when you go to Leipzig, um, go to the Bach Museum right next to the Thomaskirch and they have a wall. And from one end of the wall to the other, you can follow along and it has the complete Bach family tree. Incredible. Yeah, it's massive. It takes up the entire wall. Wow. <laughs> so when you look at that incredible wall and you see that huge family tree, it makes sense that Johann Sebastian called him, in his own words, the first profound Bach. Maybe he wasn't talking about himself at that point. Maybe. But no, he was definitely referring to Johann Christoph because he deeply admired his work. He really did. Um, but, you know, when I think about when Johann Christoph was actually alive, 
he uh, was born in 1642 and that was right at the end of the 30 years war and um when you think of the devastation that war wreaked across europe and plague was decimating the population as well i mean i've said this before it's a miracle that j.s bach survived because plague was everywhere around then not so much in eisenach being a walled city but in all the neighboring towns like arnstadt and erdruf and all of that um it's just incredible but poor old um johann christoph he did have a, a tough life he had seven children but he also lived his life in huge financial difficulties and when i read uh, the the book that sir john elliott gardner wrote music in the castle of heaven he talked a lot about about how hard it was to earn a living as a musician at the time in that part of uh, of germany and uh yes johann christoph was in financial difficulties his whole life as was bach's father at times actually yeah mm. and because johann christoph had seven children to support it might have explained why J.S. Bach uh, never went to live with him after he was orphaned because uh, Johann Sebastian was appointed a guardian, which happened to be his older brother who lived up the road, who he had not grown up with at all. And you would have thought, well, because he was so terribly fond of his second cousin and really admired him as a composer, it would have been the natural thing to go with him. But they didn't appoint him as his guardian because he was in such financial difficulty and he died a pauper, basically. Isn't that incredible? Sad. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, the whole Bach family, they didn't come from money. They worked very hard, very, very hard their whole lives. Like all musicians. Yeah, nothing's changed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ab absolutely. I know. But, um, yes, it's just an incredible life and an incredible person to be honouring in, in this program. And I honestly believe that Johann Christoph had a huge influence on the young Bach, hearing his music and growing up in that family. Mm, being surrounded by it. Mm. Absolutely. Now, the other person who I feel influenced Bach probably more than anyone else was Vivaldi. And as I was doing my research this afternoon, I stumbled upon a really cool fact. And that is in 1713, when his boss, the Duke of Weimar, because he was working for the Duke of Weimar at the time, went off to study in the Netherlands. When he came back from university, he brought a trunk stuffed with music with him for J.S. Bach. Now, Bach rifled through this trunk, and in this trunk, he found a copy of Vivaldi's Lestro Armonico Violin Concertos. Incredible. Yeah, really incredible, uh, and amongst all sorts of other music. Now, Bach really seized on this, and he thought, wow, these are something new and special. He loved them so much that he, uh, was it he did? He arranged six of them as keyboard concertos. Wow. Yeah, he didn't Huge do that. Huge compliment. With he didn't do that with any other composer. It was yeah. just Vivaldi. And ever since that moment, um, that you can look in the instrumental music of Bach and you can see the change. His music suddenly became incredibly lively and full of that Italianate rhythm. It's one of those weird but happy coincidences that life just throws at you sometimes. If that music hadn't been in that trunk, you know, Bach's music could have been quite different. So do we know if we if they ever met? No, 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 Bach no, no. Vivaldi, never they met. absolutely did not because Bach never left Germany. And they never communicated? No, they didn't. Mm. They didn't. They didn't at all. Um, so Vivaldi was travelling around Europe as a concert master and as a, as a soloist and everything else, and his music was widely being distributed all over the place, plus Vivaldi himself travelled all over the place around Europe, mm. whereas Bach, as I said, never left home. He had a full-time job. He had a full-time yeah, job. He was busy at, at Yeah, just a Leipzig. little bit. Yeah. Just a bit. Yeah. 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 Many, many children. <laughs> he was really busy. Yes, he was. 
Um, but he really did heavily influence Bach. But we're not doing any of the instrumental music of Vivaldi. We're doing one of his sacred works. Now, I don't know about you, Russell, but those sacred works of Vivaldi are just incredible. They are nothing like his instrumental works, are they? Uh, nothing like the instrumental. Uh, there are elements of, I'm more familiar with his operas, mm. uh, having sung a few of them, but that drama from opera that he's incorporated into the sacred and secular uh, compositions for voice. And it's so unusual, this this cantata for solo voice. It is. It's absolutely incredible because he was never maestro di cappella of any church. He never had a church job, um, but he was a priest, wasn't he? He was. He was a priest. Although you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I re remember You're assuming reading, I know things. I think I remembered <laughs> reading recently that because he was always composing, he was given dispensation not to conduct mass. Yes, I think so he trained right. as a priest, but he never actually worked as a priest. No, he didn't. Essentially. Yes, yeah. you are right. Yeah. Yes. Listeners, correct us if we're wrong. Write in, let us know. <laughs> we always email, want to learn. Phone. Email, phone. Yes. Text. Text. That's right. Yes. Carry a pigeon, you know, that sort of thing. But anyway, Vivaldi wrote over 50 works for the church. Um, and we know he wrote more, but they just haven't survived. Um, but anyway, this incredible Nizi Dominus is just such an incredible work. Number one, I couldn't believe that it had this stunning viola de more solo in it. And the other thing I couldn't believe was that movement called the Cum Dederit. You know the yes, one I'm talking about? The famous, the famous movement one. that if you don't know the Vivaldi Nisi Dominus, you will definitely know the Cum Dederit from Vivaldi's Nisi Dominus because, drum roll, it was used in the uh, James Bond film, Spectre. Is it that was, right? yeah. yeah. With the Brandenburg Orchestra recording of it with Andrea Scholl and you playing on it. Yes, I know. I tell you what, I can die a happy woman now. I'm not going to die tomorrow, don't worry. I mean, who knows, but I, I hope I'm not going to because I can officially say I've been in a Bond film. You've been a Bond girl. <laughs> I have not been a Bond girl, <laughs> but I've been in a Bond film technically because I've been on that recording. Yeah, I know. and it's an exquisite recording. It is actually. Now, yes, it is magical because in that recording we used lead mutes because Vivaldi specifies lead mutes. Oh, explain lead mutes. Well, you get a little piece of lead, which is very soft metal, and you bend it over the bridge and you clip it on top of the bridge and mm. it creates the most otherworldly, mysterious, incredible sound. Wow. Yeah, and in our concert coming up, everybody will have lead mutes on. Exciting. Yeah, it's going to be incredible. Wow. Yeah. So this piece is, is truly beautiful and it really shows off your voice. It shows off, you know, the countertenor voice absolutely spectacularly. Yeah, it's nine movements and there's not much respite for the singer. No, no. Um, but some of them are just you know, a page long, this beautiful setting, almost a sound bite of um, part of Psalm 126. But it is very, very ambitious of Vivaldi to have written this for this one individual singer. I'd love to have known who it was written for yeah, and who first sang it yeah, because he was, it may not have been for the Ospedale in Venice. The Pietà. The Pietà, yeah. Yes. Uh, it, it may or may not have been written for someone there. Yes, that's I, right. Yeah, I'd love to know. Oh, I know. Couldn't you imagine? Yeah. Because the countertenors they had around in Italy at the time 
Incredible. Yeah. Or the castrato. That's right. But if it was at the Pieta, it would have been a girl. That's right. Yeah. So I just love to know. I know. What it what it would have been, well, what it would have sounded like. I mean, you're just jogging my memory a bit here. W- weren't the uh, the uh, female singers so famous, and all their names were documented? Yes, because of him. That's right. Yeah. So what's really amazing for me is the end of this Nizzi Dominus. It being very similar to some of the endings of Bach's motets. The um the sort of joyful Amen, Alleluia you get at the end of that. It's the same kind of vibe, if you like. It's it's in three time and it's very celebratory. It's very virtuosic for the singer. There's a lot of similarities there. And Bach's motets, a lot of them were written quite late in his life. And they were written for funerals, quite a lot of them, even though they're very joyful, which I find amazing. It is a very extended and virtuosic Amen. Yeah. Perfect culmination, I think, to the end of an exquisite setting of Psalm 126. It's it's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. And to think how much this man, Vivaldi, influenced Bach all throughout his life is amazing. That's why I really, really wanted to include a piece of Vivaldi in this program. We couldn't have done something about Bach's orbitals without including Vivaldi, I don't think. I mean, what would his music have sounded like if he hadn't found that trunk of music? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. One of what's again, you know, one of life's happy accidents. Yeah, agreed. And whilst we're on the subject of J.S. Bach's music, I would really love to talk to you about this incredible cantata we are performing at the end of this program. Of course, we had to tie it all together with a piece of Bach or a performance of J.S. Bach, I should specify, Johann Sebastian Bach. Now, for this program, I've chosen BWV 35, Geist und Ziele, because it's extremely influenced by Vivaldi. And you can hear it. You can hear it all the way through. Throughout, yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. A lot of Bach's cantatas are in two parts, like this one. But unlike any of the other cantatas, it starts with an instrumental symphonia in both halves with this obbligato organ. Which is just as important as the voice. It is. They are absolute um, con- yeah, conversation partners, if you like. Hmm. And I read a little quote, actually, um, by Bach's first biographer, um, Forkel, and he said that the organ soloist is a partner to the alto the whole way through this cantata. It's The organ becomes a sort of a sacred symbol to accompany the gallant conversationalist, which is you. Mm. And Bach magically integrates the concerto style into his cantata perfectly, basically taking it to another level. So he's taken the incredible elements of Vivaldi's rhythmical and harmonic vivaciousness, combined it with the sacred cantata, and created something greater as a result. Yeah, it's very, again, I think also quite virtuosic, extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. It's amongst the most difficult Bach, I think, or J.S. Bach, I think I have learnt and sung. Tell me about it. Tell us, tell us about the difficulties. The music's so angular. The, the way he writes is, of course, most people will probably know that J.S. Bach likes to treat the human voice like another instrument. So he doesn't take into consideration the difficulty of singing certain pitches or rhythmic patterns. Uh, So he really makes the singer work, (laughs) which is a real challenge when you've got a lot of German text and particularly in this setting, sacred, um, sacred text and delivering it uh, in an effortless way without distracting from the meaning of the text, but also excellent at word colouring, word painting. 
Vietfeverit, uh, meaning confused or confusion, you can hear it in the first movement for the voice, in the, the way that he moves through certain keys and hasn't actually decided where he's going to end up. And it's perfectly coloured by the choice of text. That's right. I mean, I'm just thinking about the opening of that um, that movement. You know, you have you have uh, dis, you know a descending second, then a minor third, then a down um, down a minor sixth, then up again, then up a major four, a perfect fourth, and then you've got ninth jumps and seventh jumps all the way through it. It's incredibly jagged. Very jagged. And speaking of jagged, the recitatives is only two, which is a relief because they're even more angular and jagged. Than the than the R. Well, you better take a jagged little pill before you get going on this one, Russell. <laughs> I should. <laughs> and yet, it's inspired writing. And I was reading recently, doing research for your project or our project, that Bach must have had a very talented uh, alto that he was using during his time when he wrote this cantata and two others, because those other two cantatas also incredibly difficult. I mean, this this Bach is possibly the most difficult Bach I have ever learnt slash sung about to sing. I'm sorry, slash not sorry. Thank you. I like a challenge. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> Thanks. I, I. It's just, it is one of the greatest Bach cantatas, I think. And it's all in a minor key, but it doesn't feel sad, does it? Not at all. I it's think that's very uplifting. I think it's a great thing that composers can do sometimes where they choose to write an aria in a major key that has um, pain or suffering a sentiment within the text. So it goes against, it forces the listener to go against what they're hearing and really listen to the text and connect with that. And here we have uh, a fantastic example of why I think J.S. Bach is probably the greatest composer who ever lived because he's able to, like you said, force you to feel all kinds of different things through incredibly subtle, both scholastic, academic, intellectual ways that you would never have guessed is happening behind the scenes, but you you do feel it like that. The way he's able to take the Vivaldian concerto Italianate style, transform it and make it better, transform it into something greater than the sum of its parts. Can you think of another composer who could have done that? No. No. <laughs> Yeah, no. but still also remain true to himself and his own style, his own unique style. Yeah, influenced by all these people around him. It's very clever that you've programmed it that way. Oh, thanks. So, in this program, to be your duo partner in the cantata, we have the wonderful Australian organist Nathan Cox, and he will actually be playing a piece of Buxtehude, a, a fantastic preludium in this program, because we couldn't not include Buxtehude, obviously, because like Vivaldi, he was one of Bach's great heroes. I mean, he walked 400 kilometres to hear the guy play. 400 kilometres? That's right. From Arnstadt all the way to Lübeck and back again. So it's, it's uh, what, nearly 300 kilometres from Sydney to Canberra. So that's w walking further than Sydney to Canberra. That's maybe Sydney like Sydney to Canberra to, is it down to the Snowies? I don't know. Or is it Sydney to Canberra? And then back to Bowral. Is that how far it is? <gasps> it's Sydney to Wagga Wagga. Or maybe even further. Or maybe even further. Wagga Wagga is nearly 400. Okay. Wow. Exactly. That's a long way to walk. He must have had really good shoes. Yeah. Very sore feet. Yeah. And very sore feet. That's right. Wow. I know. It's just, it's 
just incredible the dedication of this man walking all that way to hear books to Huda. God, I hope the concert wasn't sold out. He didn't have the internet. He couldn't check. Oh, no socials, no, no today ticks. No, that's He right. didn't know someone in the orchestra. No, no, he didn't. He didn't have a mate. No, no comps. No comps. Oh, no. I no, shouldn't disappointing. mention that. No. Yeah, no. No one gets comps. No, that, no. <laughs> There's no comps. <laughs> no. So we're, we're having a piece of books to Huda. We're also having a piece of Packlebell. Which people probably aren't familiar with other than his famous Packlebell cannon. Yeah, I can't believe you actually mentioned that. I was really hoping we'd get away with not mentioning Without the mention- cannon. And you've just shot that theory in the foot. Because most people might look at your program and think, oh, that'll be Packlebell's cannon. I know that. Yeah, but right. it's not. No, it's not. No. It's really not. It's some other really famous, beautiful piece by Packlebell. That's right. Actually, it's not famous, but it is beautiful. It'll be famous after we've done it. It will be dead famous after this, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, my aim, one of my aims in life, is to resurrect Packlebell from the realms of a wedding entrance piece and elevate him to the realms of a truly great composer. I would love for people to get out there and start listening to the other music Packlebell wrote. Did you know that Packlebell was Bach's father's best mate? J.S. Buck's father's best mate. Ambrosius's best buddy. Wow. And so Packlebell... I did not know that. Packlebell was there throughout Buck's childhood. When when Johann Sebastian was orphaned at the age of 10, there was Packlebell looking over him, making sure he was okay, taking care of him, getting him sorted. Another influencer. Absolutely, which is why I had to include him as well. Packlebell's music was a big part of Johann Sebastian's life when he was, when he was a little kid and growing up in his teenage years. You know, from the age of 10 through till I think it was about 16 or 17 when he actually had to leave home in order to have food because Make a living. They, they were in the situation. His older brother was in a situation where he basically said, if you can't pay your board, you have to leave. Wow. And it was a job or food that was the choice. And anyway, up until that point, Packlebill was around. He was taking care of the young Johann Sebastian, watching over him, guiding him helping him with musical examples and, and you know, the, um, again, in uh, John Elliott's book, he sort of sort of describes this scene where the young J.S. is caught by his older brother with a little light on in his room, busily copying out Packlebell's music just wow. to learn from it. Um, everybody I asked to work with me to come on this podcast, I asked the same question. What's been your personal relationship with Bach? How has he changed you? How has he made you grow as a musician, as a person? And what's his what's his impact on you? Well, I was always quite frightened of singing Bach when I was a student. And for a long time, I held him at arm's length because it's difficult and you need a certain level of skill in order to do it uh, well. So uh, when I first, my first Bach was um, the alto soloist in Matthew Passion. Oh, so, gosh, Wow from zero to a hundred in the first go. Uh, and it was in the UK when I, when I was living there and it was uh, with the Lester Bach choir and it was a really wonderful experience performing in the cathedral St. James the Greater and first time singing for an audience and getting the, the chance to sing all the fabulous arias in the Matthew Passion and hear them in that surrounding, but also singing Ebarmadich for the first time, probably the most famous alto aria by J.S. Bach. Uh, 
full of longing with the fabulous solo violin uh, in partnership with the voice. Um, that was a really special moment for me. I can just that. imagine you would have fallen instantly in love with Bach yeah. if that was your first experience of it. Yeah. I mean, you really did go straight to the top, didn't you? <laughs> from Like I say, from zero to 100. That's like the equivalent of, you know, living on, on you know, sort of a, what is it, a job seeker. $45 per 100 years that the Australian government gives you and then winning the lottery, the Euro lottery, which is like $1.3 billion right now. That's the yeah, equivalent Euro of millions. that. Yeah, yeah. That, that's what happened to you, but with Bach. Yeah, and I think from that moment on, so that removed a little bit of the fear surrounding performing Bach because a lot of performers probably don't, they probably don't talk about fear and performance anxiety, but it is real. It most definitely uh, is real. And you want to do... A decent job but you also want to be uh true to what the composer has written and i think once you have performed jay spark for the first time that you become more familiar with the way he writes and as we were saying earlier about being angular and chromatic and not always but you can sometimes learn the the patterns and the shapes and the phrasing that he uses sometimes you're you know left afield uh and can you can think oh gosh i wasn't expecting that um but he really is um a great composer and a great artist for writing for the voice for the voice yeah that's right it's great to get your perspective on it as a vocalist because you've sung so many different composers so much repertoire of your life and you yeah. must have been able to see clearly who writes well for the voice and who doesn't who stands out yeah uh, lots of handel lots of vivaldi uh bach again not ever writing opera there's still that same intensity and drama in his vocal writing that you experience in opera which is incredible because of the text that he uses and the way that he writes and commits to writing for the voice. So is it just as satisfying for you? Just as satisfying. It's great to hear. Sometimes I wonder what an opera by Bach would sound like. Yeah. What would his, what would his story have been? What would, you know, what would the text he have chosen been? I'm thinking about his later secular cantatas. They're very, you know, the allegorical ones with all of the mad characters from, you know, from Greek mythology that he sort of wove in. He wrote lots of these huge cantatas for sort of municipal occasions in Leipzig for things like the inauguration of the town council and things like that. And they're full of all these mad Greek characters, like, uh, I don't know, thunder and wind and all sorts of mad, these kinds of things. And they are very dramatic. Wow. Uh, that's the only thing I can think of, really. Uh, people have tried to turn the passions into operas, haven't they? Most famously at Glyndebourne. Staged. Yes, yeah, staged ones. So they're close, but they are not opera, are they? They're not. They didn't take that step. No, not designed for that reason. And I think the reason not for that is that, that reason. Bach was ultimately looking for something or looking for a way to reach a higher plane, a higher purpose all the time. And, and also that was yeah. his brief. It was his brief. That was, but it was his, also that was his, his job. 
it was his job, but lucky for him, it was also his life brief. If, if you know, he sort of decided for himself, my brief in life is to dedicate myself to God and to the glory of God and to reach that higher plane, the higher purpose. Mm. And you can hear it in the writing. Absolutely. And I perhaps opera was not enough of a spiritual leap for him. Mm. Who knows? Love to ask him one day. Well, Russell, it's been an absolute joy to have you on our podcast. I'm so looking forward to this program that we've created. We have curated even together, really, um, to celebrate Bach, his life and these incredible musicians that he had around him throughout the whole, his whole existence, his whole journey through life. And if anyone is interested in coming along to hear it, there are many different ways to do so. The first of which, of course, we think the best is to be there in person. Our first show will be on Friday, the 23rd of September, 7.30pm at the incredible newly renovated Cell Block Theatre in Darlinghurst, which is one of Sydney's most historic, beautiful old sandstone buildings. And then on Sunday, the 25th of September at 2.30pm at the beautiful Our Lady of Dolores Church in Chatswood. You can find ticket details on our website. There's a phone number you can call there as well. And if you can't be there in person, it will be live streamed via the Australian Digital Concert Hall. So just hop on their website, follow the link, and you can watch it at your convenience from your own home up to three days after the show. So thank you again, Russell. Thanks, Maddie. It's been a joy to chat with you. And if this is any indication for those listening what our performance is going to be like, then it's going to be a lot of fun and it's going to be a very moving uh, performance. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that chat just as much as I did. Now, to find out more about Bach Academy Australia, make sure you visit our website, which is www.bachacademyaustralia.com.au. Make sure you spell Academy the German way as well, spelt A-K-A-D-E-M-I-E, staying true to our German roots, of course. On our website, you can find out the details of all our upcoming performances near you, and you can subscribe to our e-newsletter. Also, you can find Bach Academy Australia on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. But make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts from. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time. Mm-hmm.